My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Mark Freeman, an assistant professor of neurobiology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So I read on your HHMI investigator profile that when you started college, you intended to become a high school teacher, but within six months, you had fallen in love with biology. And eventually, with the urging of one of your professors, had decided upon a career in science. Could you talk a little bit about what made you fall in love with biology and, uh, you know, maybe why you wanted to be a high school teacher to begin with? Yeah, sure. So I think I'm a good example of what can happen when someone gets put in the hands of the right professor or teacher. And I essentially went to college um, having come from a high school career, which you would not call uh, stellar. And I essentially went to college because my parents told me I had to. And I went to a small undergraduate institution called Eastern Connecticut State University. And I had sort of watching high school teachers do their job, thought that that was a pretty nice, pretty good gig. You get to teach and you learn about things of interest to you. And I thought, actually, I would probably be a history teacher because I enjoy history and still do. But uh, I got to college and um, also took biology because biology was one of the things I always enjoyed in high school as well. We had a great biology teacher. And I was fortunate enough to take a few really great biology classes. It turned out that the program they had at uh, ECSU in biology was fabulous. And in my second semester, one of the particular professors I became very good friends with uh, and worked with for uh, three and a half years, Mike Adams, asked me if I wanted to do an independent research project. And so I said, well, what's that? And he explained it to me. And um, next thing you know, I was at the bench doing work with him. And what was wonderful was we could spend a huge amount of time just one-on-one -on -one in the lab. And uh, as we were doing experiments, I would just ask question after question after question. And I think I learned more at the lab working side by side with him than I did in, in all of my classes combined. Hmm. And uh, the thing that was really wonderful about that experience is that he was one of these people who was just so fascinated with biology uh, that it was infectious. And uh, I picked up on that and just started digging into my biology classes and really enjoyed them and quickly left behind the notion of being a history major. Uh, and then uh, the more research I did, the more I thought it'd be wonderful to go off to graduate school. Uh, in fact, when I entered <laughs> college, I also didn't even know what graduate school was. One of my advisors said to me, have you ever considered grad school? And I said, what's that? And he explained it to me and I said, you get paid to be a student. <laughs> so after doing plenty of research and, and really being wonderfully trained by this guy, Mike Adams, uh, at the bench, uh, went off to graduate school and pursued a PhD in biology. So it was really falling into a program where they really inspired uh, young students in the sciences. And in particular, having a really fabulous mentor who, who pushed me in directions that I ultimately thought was really interesting. Hmm. Well, uh, speaking of your graduate training, you as you mentioned, went on to do graduate training uh, at Yale in John Carlson's lab, where you studied the olfactory system in Drosophila. And in particular, you characterized a gene called DARE, which plays a role in the synthesis of steroid hormones, and showed that the loss of this gene disrupts olfactory processing and eventually leads to neuronal degeneration in the adult fly. Could you talk about how steroid hormones and the genes that control them, such as DARE, help shape the formation and function of the nervous system? I can, but I will admit now that much of what I say will be a guess. And I'll tell you why um, the backstory to this is that I went to John's lab 
to study olfaction. And one of the ways you do that is to try to, you know, you develop behavioral assays, which many of the people at Stanford will use to see whether or not a fly or a worm or another organism can respond to an odor or vision properly. And uh, you look for mutants that don't do it properly. And in our case, we were looking for mutants that were affected in their olfactory response. And we found one, which was a Pielman insertion. And at the time, which was, well, it's 1994, I think, so a while ago, it was a P insertion, which made it very straightforward to clone, uh, or generally could make it straightforward to clone. So we had a P element insertion mutant, which had a really interesting behavioral phenotype. And I decided I should try to clone the gene. And that was my thesis project. And this was at a time where you just sort of went in not having any idea what the gene was. You cloned it and then tried to figure out why things were altered. So we cloned the gene, or I cloned the gene, and it turned out to be this fly molecule called adrenodoxin reductase, which basically acts as an electron carrier for P450s, which are required. That one functions in the mitochondria, but P450s are found both in mitochondria and in microsomes. And they perform all the modifications of cholesterol that turn it into steroid hormones. So when you knocked out this gene, a large number of the modifications that had to take place by these P450s couldn't occur. And so the original mutant we had was actually a weak allele, which knocked down expression of this gene by about 50% and led to this behavioral defect. And, you know, what we started to think was maybe what happens is the nervous system gets so screwed up in these flies that it's affecting olfaction in sort of an indirect way. And I went on to show that these flies actually have a number of behavioral defects in, in vision. So for some strange reason, the flies actually, rather than run toward light, will run away from light, which is the opposite of what they normally should do. And they have a variety of other behavioral abnormalities, all of which you can rescue by putting back a wild type copy of the gene. On the other hand, they can still see and run away from light, which is... <laughs> they can, right? But that was a weak allele. When you made stronger alleles, what happened is they would actually die very early in development when the pulses of steroid would normally drive uh, molting behavior and eventually metamorphosis. So there was quite a bit of developmental characterization of that mutant. And what we also did was generate some sort of intermediate strength alleles. And those led to the production of flies where they'd grow to late pupil stages, they'd close, and then they'd sort of fall over and twitch and their brain would fall apart. And those were, we assumed, mutations which affected the gene enough so that it could get through metamorphosis, but the nervous system wasn't assembled properly. And we were able to assign all those defects to this gene and make the observation which I sort of did on my way out, which I was interested in, that right before eclosion, this steroid biosynthetic gene comes on very strongly and subsets the cells in the brain, and then it goes off two or three days after eclosion, uh, and you have an adult fly. And it's known, actually, that flies don't fully mature behaviorally until they're, you know, a couple of days old. So my favorite model remains, but this remains untested because uh, no one worked on the project once I left, <laughs> that at the end of metamorphosis, there's actually a pulse of steroids that are produced in the brain or some other molecule that sort of solidifies maturation of the nervous system and tells the animal, you know, it's a juvenile needs to mature, needs to be able to see, smell, and, and yeah. sort of firm up these neural circuits. Um, the problem was that at the same time, John's lab had identified the odorant receptors in the fly. And so students would come to the lab and they all wanted to work on the odorant receptors. And so the D.A.R.E. project quickly got left in the dust. That's life. I can understand that decision. If, if your undergrad career to you with a, a sort of unbridled enthusiasm for biology, uh, how would you characterize your feeling leaving graduate school? As an undergraduate graduate student and postdoc, I was extremely fortunate to work for the people who I did. Um, so I already told you about my undergraduate advisor, but John Carlson was one of the, 
most amazing mentors I think you could have, uh, as was Chris Doe, where I went to postdoc. And, you know, despite the fact it was kind of a tough project, I really enjoyed graduate school. Um, John gave me a huge amount of freedom to go off and do experiments that maybe weren't as well thought out as they should be, but one of the best ways to learn is to fail. And it certainly happened a fair amount in my graduate career. And yeah, I really enjoyed my time. I was in no hurry. I actually stayed for six years. I probably could have left in five, but I really enjoyed it. And John was happy to have me. So I continued working to sort of finish up the, that project and a couple others. Um, so I, I left very excited about neuroscience, but was certainly hoping I wouldn't be working on steroid hormones when I moved to <laughs> Chris's lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't what I had anticipated, but I think it's important to be flexible, uh, especially early on, because you first have to just learn how to be productive before you settle in on whatever you're going to study for your whole life. Yeah. And I think I've been fortunate in that I'm also able to become excited about a number of things. If there's an interesting biological process, it doesn't take a huge amount to get me sort of interested in trying to figure out how it works. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you went on to do a postdoc uh, with Chris Doe at the University of Oregon where you began to study the role of glia in neural development and function. And right. there you identified 40 novel drosophila glial genes and elucidated the mechanism by which the same pool of neural stem cells can generate both neurons and glia. So can you talk a little bit about how you got into glia and why drosophila glia? So Chris was well known at the time for many things, including trying to understand the mechanisms by which the nervous system is patterned along the dorsal ventral axis, anterior posterior axis, how different neural stem cells are generated, what progeny they make, and so on, and mechanisms of asymmetric cell division, and uh, more recently, temporal cell phase specification. So when I arrived, I went to Chris's lab because I didn't have a particular project in mind. I was just really impressed with their science, and there was a huge amount known about the cellular histology of the embryonic nervous system down almost to the single cell level, and it was sort of screaming for forward genetic screens to try to pick apart neurogenesis, right, in a very detailed way. It's so actually stereotyped that they often refer to the fly embryonic nervous system as the worm in the fly because the lineages are almost invariant. So it's really a beautiful system. And I was confident if I went there and worked with Chris because he had been so successful in the past and was a really nice guy that I could find something interesting to do. So when I arrived, I started working on a project which had to do with asymmetric cell division. And there was a particular neuroblast that divided once and made a daughter cell that made three glia, and then it switched to making neurons. And the first project I worked on was really an asymmetric cell division problem, and that was how does this cell know how to make glia and then switch to making neurons? Yeah. And the bottom line was that what seems to happen is the neuroblast turns on this master regulator of embryonic glial fate called GCM, glial cells missing. That burst of expression lasts for one cell division where the neuroblast and the daughter cell each inherit the RNA and protein. And the daughter cell processes asymmetrically localized prospero, which is a transcription factor, which solidifies the daughter cell fate as a glial cell. And then the neuroblast shuts off GCM, and by the next time it makes a daughter cell, there's no RNA or protein around for GCM, so it switches to making neurons, which is the default state, it seems. And that was sort of the first project, and it was really trying to understand this particular lineage but in doing that project, I had to read a lot on glia. And as I read and looked at the tools that were available in Drosophila, you know, the genome had just been sequenced. Um, people like you probably feel like it's been around forever, but it was the second year of my postdoc when it was actually published, and not even in its entirety. Um, there were microarrays that just come online, and there was this mutant where you could knock it out, uh, GCM, and you have no glia, or you could overexpress it and turn the whole nervous system into glia. And so that sort of like oozed potential. 
And if you looked at the glial field, it was clear that there was more and more data suggesting interesting roles for these cells in the nervous system. And I was sort of just confident that if you looked at the questions appropriately in the fly, you could answer some really fundamental questions in glial cell biology. And so I asked Chris, actually, if I could just switch to studying glia. And he was very supportive. And he sort of jokingly said, well, that's fine, but you have to take everything with you when you leave, which for a postdoc, you know, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> so, um, so then I switched to studying glia. And one thing I definitely learned from Chris is it's very difficult to do good work uh, unless you have good markers. And that's what led to the notion of we should just do a screen, molecular screen uh, by microarray, the computational binding site search algorithm for targets of this molecule GCM, which turns on glial faint. Uh, and then just screen enhancer trap lines for genes expressed in glia, then use those as tools to build driver lines and so on so we can get our hands into these cells and start manipulating them. And that's essentially what I did for the last three years I was in Chris's lab, which was great, right? I isolated a whole bunch of new genes and picked a few to start doing functional characterization of. And that's sort of how I finished up my career there. And that laid the foundation for me moving to UMass and, and starting my own lab. So you moved to UMass in about 2004, and in 2006, your lab published a paper where you showed that injury to axons elicits a morphological and molecular response from the glia, which ultimately leads to them engulfing and clearing out uh, the injured axon. And you, you were able to show some of the genes that were acquired for the glial cells in, in order to be able to sense that there's an injured axon around. So how did you decide to start working on uh, axon injury? So... Injury in the nervous system is one of the most heavily studied topics in glial cell biology. So glia are extraordinarily sensitive to neural health. And if there's any injury in the nervous system, they respond really robustly. And we were just interested in the notion of whether or not fly glia might respond to injury. And that was sort of an idea I had come up with when I was in Chris's lab, but never had time to study. And when I started my own lab, I actually had this file of sort of ideas, like, you know, what am I going to have my graduate students do when I start a lab? So my first graduate student came in and idea number 27 was Waller and degeneration in Drosophila. And she skipped like one through 26 and said, that seems interesting. Let's work on that. And my old boss, John, used to say that, you know, it's really important to let people pick their own projects because they'll be more excited about it and they'll work harder and so on. So I said, sure, let's try that. And we came up with a way to induce axon degeneration. And then I had identified actually in the screen in Chris's lab a molecule called Draper, which is a um, an engulfment receptor required for glia to recognize and phagocytose cell corpses, so the product of an apoptotic cell death event in a neuron. And so we thought, okay, well, let's start with that and see if that's involved. And it turned out that it was. Uh, it was very important. In fact, all so we, we could induce injury. We could see very robust molecular and morphological responses from fly glia. If you knocked out this Draper receptor, they all went away. We also found that when you cut the axon, the axon, it was not clear whether or not it, whether or not it sort of wasted away or whether it, it actually drove its own destruction. And there was this molecule called WLDS in the, the mouse that if you overexpress it in a neuron, it was sufficient to block the axonal degeneration. So we threw that into the fly and cut the axons and found essentially the same thing, hmm. um, that if you express this mouse molecule, you could block axon degeneration. So suddenly we had this nice system where we could look at how does the axon destroy itself signal to glia and then how did glia receive that signal and so over the last several years we've spent quite a bit of time trying to dissect how activation of this draper receptor leads to changes in gene expression extension of glial membranes to the injury site and phagocytosis of axonal debris and you know that's probably been about half of the work we've done in the laboratory is defining those signaling pathways 
And I think we have a pretty good idea of how that all works now. What we still don't know, which I think is a critical question, is what is the signal that activates the receptor that comes from the degenerating axon? That's one of the major questions in the field. And we're now doing some screens for mutations that are required in the neuron um, using an approach called Markham that was developed, you probably know by Lee Chin Lo at your, at your place, to look for genes required in the neuron to signal to glia to, to activate them after injury. So the whole interaction event, we spent a, a lot of time trying to dissect from both sides, both the axonal biology as well as the glial response. Around Stanford, if, when you think of glia, you think, of course, of the Barris lab. And when you talk to the Barris lab, <laughs> one of the ideas that they are uh, really excited about is the idea that uh, glial cells could be actively involved in eating synapses. Yes actively involved in synapse elimination. And I guess I'm wondering whether or not you think that the same genes which activate glia to come and eat axons are, are potentially involved in the eating of synapses. And So in the fly, Draper is required for pruning of synapses, axons, dendrites. Um, and there's actually some sophistication. There's a couple of different engulfment pathways in fly glia. And what we've actually just recently got a paper into genes and development on is how those different pathways are used differentially to eat versus a cell body, for example, versus a degenerating axon. Hmm. So different parts of the cell get eaten different ways by glia, which is kind of interesting. So how do synapses get eaten? Synapses are destroyed in a Draper-dependent fashion in the fly. And what's actually really exciting, because it sort of justifies our work for the last eight or ten years, is Ben's lab, and especially Wan Suk Chung has recently, he actually has a paper coming out in Nature, I think, in the next few weeks, showing that astrocytes express MEGF10, which is mouse draper. Mm -hmm. And if you knock that out, you get a really dramatic decrease in the pruning of synapses in the DLGN, much right. like you see in the past with other mutants from their lab. You know, when I met Ben, he jokingly said to me, because GCM is this weird aberration where um, it's required to make glia in the embryo of the fly, but how much of a role it plays later in development is not completely clear. But it's definitely not involved in mammalian cell phase specification of astrocytes or other glial types. So when I first met Ben, he said, well, maybe fly glia from outer space, and he was jokingly. And uh, I said, well, I hope not. And what we're finding now is that some of the genes we first identify in the fly, like Draper, are turning up in mammalian glial subtypes. And in uh, particular, what I'll talk about when I visit is the subset of cells, you know, Ben's favorite cell, which is the astrocyte. And we spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out, do flies have an astrocyte-like cell type? If so what does it look like? How similar is it to astrocytes in mammals? And then tell a couple of stories about how we're trying to make progress on how they're specified, how they help organize neural circuits through pruning events and also uh, modulate neural activity in mature circuits. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That was my last question, but I think you already answered it. So in closing, we like to ask uh, some rapid fire, shorter answer questions. Okay, good luck. <laughs> uh, so if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, and I mean you specifically, what advice would you give yourself? Slow down and have more fun. Don't be in such a rush to finish. That's good advice. Yeah, because it's fun. It's really the best time of your life. <laughs> The pressure just gets more from there, right? <laughs> so if I were to ask you what the first experiment that you ever did was, what jumps to your mind? Pulse chase with S35 into Chlamydomonas reinhardii after heat shock to identify heat shock proteins by autoradiography. <laughs> that was a disturbingly robotic response. <laughs> so when I was an undergrad, we didn't have a lot of money 
Yeah. So what we would do is buy a giant vat of S35 sulfate at the beginning of the year and do every possible pulse chase experiment we could think of. <laughs> and so I got pretty good at those, and uh, that's what we did. But that was the first, and I must have done a hundred. So, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was it was technically you know something for an undergraduate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so has uh, working with flies changed the way you interact with flies and other insects outside of the lab? No, it hasn't. <laughs> um, I really love Drosophila, and I am I am always amazed at how quickly, how wonderful the field is. Almost everybody plays nice and shares tools. I think Lee Chin's a fabulous example of that, as are many other people at Stanford. You know, I, I always tell people, we do some mouse work now, but we'll always be primarily a fly lab because the, the precision with which you can answer a question is really unrivaled. And I think for the questions that we're interested in, I, I think the flying nervous system is sufficiently complex where it has glial subtypes that are like astrocytes and glia that, and sheath axons like Schwann cells. Whereas a worm might be a little too simple to have a, you know, as sophisticated a, a subset of glia. So, you know, the, the complexity of the nervous system is just right and the genetic tools are fabulous. But even having said all that, I'm happy to swat flies and shoo away fruit flies from my fruit. <laughs> uh, and I'm always disgusted by the notion I can bring a piece of fruit home and a few days later, the animals pop out of it. And I know it's because maggots have been crawling around. <laughs> yeah. You know, wh one thing I was struck with listening to, to you talk throughout the, this interview was that you really had some great mentors. Um, and I guess I'm wondering yes. uh, what kind of process did you go through in choosing the mentors that you got? It seems like you you kind of stumbled upon your first one, but do you attribute the other ones to their luck or what advice would you give graduate students or postdocs about selecting mentors? You know, so there is a, I'm not deflecting this question, I'll answer it, but Ben Barris just wrote an amazing piece, I think it was in Cell, on that very question. Yeah, on how neuron, to choose, or, it was wait, a neuron, okay, wait, well it was a Cell press. It's somewhere, it's somewhere yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was on how to choose a mentor. And there are so many variables. In terms of who I wound up working with, as an undergraduate, it was just blind luck. I met this professor who I, I, I liked. He happened to teach topics like molecular genetics I was interested in and loved Monty Python and all the other things that a young male loves. And so we hit it off, and he turned out to be a great mentor and teach me a huge amount of things. When I went to graduate school, I started to ask around. And I, I wanted to work in a model organism because I really enjoyed genetics, and so I did a rotation in actually a yeast lab, Mike Snyder, who's now I think your chair of genetics, and then um, John Carlson's lab. And I and I loved Drosophila from the moment I stepped foot in his lab. And, you know, I can't say I actually did an exhaustive search to, to sort of see if there were better opportunities. But when you go to a lab and everyone there seems really happy and productive, and you can see everyone has a great project and they really enjoy working with their current boss and you're rotating as a rotation student, I think that's a good sign, right? And then I would, I would say that, and then I would say go read Ben's article because I think that says a lot about really key things to think about. You know, where is the PI in their career? How much time are you going to get to spend with them? How much time do they take to try to help you learn how to write? You know, John was fabulous for that, as was Chris. And then for postdoc advisor, I knew I was interested in Drosophila neurogenesis, and Chris was really the guy. And all indications were that he really ran a tremendous lab, but was also a really nice person. Everyone who I talked to liked him a lot. I talked to former postdocs in the lab. He was younger, which I thought was good. 
and had generated a couple postdocs who stayed in academics, but not so many that I felt the field was saturated. Mm -hmm. In the end, it didn't matter because I started working on glia anyways. But if you go to a lab that's too well established, you know, you, the field may be saturated with former trainees from that lab. But ultimately, you really need to pick what it is that you're interested in. That's got to really be the guiding factor. And then try to pick out a niche and make some progress. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. Green. Sure. Sure. It's my pleasure. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. We hope you join us next week when our guest will be David Ginty, a professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.